Welcome to Inside Maine. We're going to talk today about the government shutdown, about what's going on in Washington, about how it's affecting people and how we might be able to fix it. And our first guest is one of my very best friends in Washington, Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia. He and I came into the Senate together. We were both governors, and we've worked together very closely on a lot of issues since being here. Let me start, Tim. You told me something just before we went on the air that you did this afternoon that, to me, sort of encapsulates this whole issue, Chefs for Feds. Chefs for Feds, Angus. A great chef in Washington, Jose Andres recruited others to open a restaurant in a vacant storefront at 7th and Pennsylvania, about halfway between Congress and the White House. They opened it last Tuesday. They're open every day, 11 to 6, to give free meals to federal employees and their families. They're serving six to 8,000 meals a day. You're kidding. Six, six to 8,000. 8, and you, you went down this afternoon? I went down to, to volunteer. And uh, it's cold in Washington today. The temperature's probably in the 20s. Uh, when I pulled up, looking at that big, big line of federal employees waiting outside. To there was get a in. line outside. Line outside, wait to go in and get and, your soup and, and your who sandwich. And who were these uh, lower-level employees? Who were the people? It was amazing. So let me tell you about the employees, and let me tell you about who was working at the uh, restaurant. So the employees were from all agencies, but I was struck by how many of them were in uniform. They're uniformed law enforcement, park police, folks from the FBI, and other federal agencies were there waiting in the cold so they could get inside and get their soup or sandwich. I went in then and got behind the counter and worked with people and talked to folks and helped them get their meal. The volunteers themselves were largely furloughed federal employees. They're being locked out of their office. They still want to serve their fellow man, so they're down volunteering. And also employees and chefs from restaurants all over the area. I saw a great baker from Fauquier County, which is in the sort of outer, outer, outer suburbs of Washington. Brian Noyes, Red Truck Bakery, had driven in, and he was helping serve. Well, you know, Pretty if, this, amazing. if this were a real crisis, a hurricane, some kind of, uh, you know, an earthquake or something, this would all be very heartwarming. But this is a totally manufactured crisis. Well, it's, it's, it's amazing to- Completely unnecessary. That. Jose Andres, the chef, said he started this chef's organization to serve meals in Puerto Rico after the hurricane. They've now done Puerto Rico— They have done wildfire relief in California, and they have done tsunami relief in Indonesia. He said, now, this we consider this humanitarian disaster, but it's completely man-made and completely unnecessary. And he looked me in the eye and he said, Tim, go back and tell your colleagues, shut me down. Open the government, but shut me down. I don't need to be here. And Angus today, in addition to the restaurant, they have a coat closet. They were handing out diapers to moms with young kids because diapers can be expensive. Other common household items. And it was heartbreaking. It looked like the line looked like a picture from the Depression, but we got a stock market over 20,000 and we got a low unemployment rate. So why have this at all? So unnecessary. I'm hearing similar things from Maine where, for example, a friend of mine was volunteering at a food bank and in comes a mom and dad and three kids from the Coast Guard. Yeah. From the Coast Guard, getting food from a food bank in order to to be able to feed their family, and that that's the stories like that just go over and over. I just heard today about one of our credit unions that's offering furlough loans. Yeah, one percent mm-hmm. up to five thousand dollars a year to, to to repay fees waived. I mean, again, it's heartwarming in the sense of people coming together, but it's so dumb yeah, that, it that it's, it's totally man made. Now, okay, let me be the devil's advocate. Mm-hmm. Why don't we just Give the president what he wants and get this over with. The, the reason is, Angus, as you know, I think we have to stand firm against shutdowns. 
Um, not firm against border security, not firm against talking to the president about anything he wants. We have to stand firm against shutdown. So what I have said and, and others, you reopen the government and right away we will be in a discussion with you about everything you want. His proposal that he put on the table Saturday, that should be introduced as a bill. It should be immediately referred to the right committee. Let's question the administration about it. Let's move it through the committee. Understand exactly what they're proposing. Exactly. What are you proposing? We'll mark it up. Since the committee's majority Republican with a Republican chair, they can get that bill out of committee on the floor. The floor's majority Republican. But let's at least understand the proposal and take it seriously. And that we should do. We should honor and respect the president's proposal enough to do it, but we should reopen government while we're doing it. That's what uh, That was going to be my question. The question is, when do you reopen before or after? And what's the problem? I know the answer to this yeah. question. <laughs> I'm setting you up here. Yeah. But why not, as, as again, why not just give him what he wants and then, then we can uh, reopen the government and, and move on? Sure. First, because there are some aspects of his proposal that we can make better for Democrats and Republicans. But second... If we let him punish FBI agents and air traffic controllers and TSA Including and Secret stamp, Service agents who have to take a bullet for him. Absolutely. If he, are not if, being paid. If we let him punish all of them to get what he wants, and then we say, oh, you're right, we got to give you what you want, he will shut the government down over and over and over again every time he's not happy. And as I've talked to my federal employees, they've said, Senator, get us out of the shutdown, but do it in a way that discredits the use of shutdown ever again. Don't do it in a way that encourages more shutdowns. Yeah, and that's, that's why we have to reopen That's first. exactly the concern I have, that it will become a his go-to tactic. Right. Because in a divided government where, he, you know, he's, <laughs> he's got to work with the House and the Senate. Yeah. And if you allow him to this end run process where he can basically say, I'm going to shut down the government unless you give me pretty much 100 percent of what I want, then we'll have these crucial votes. A debt ceiling is another one that worries me that's coming up Mm -hmm. that uh, could affect the whole world economy. And then budget after budget after budget. And it may not be the wall the next time. It might be I have to have a change in the asylum rules or some kind of something else about something entirely. I've got it. You've got to approve the new NAFTA deal or I'm going to shut down the government. That's what's worrisome about this. And that's why guys like you and I are in a bind because we want to get it over with. But we don't want to create a situation where it keeps happening. Yeah, I think I think that uh, any shutdown is is. If you push for it, you're violating the oath of office. So when he said in December, yeah, I'll shut the government down and I'll be proud to have my name connected to it. And when he said after the shutdown that he was proud of it, I dare anybody to go look at that line of people waiting outside that restaurant and say they're proud of that. You cannot be proud of that in this country. And um, one of my Coast Guarders told me today, I'm a young Coast Guarder. My salary isn't that high. I now skip dinner to buy dog food. I have dogs. I want my dogs to not go hungry. I can eat breakfast and lunch and figure out a way to get by. I am now not eating dinner so that my dogs will have food. That what a what a just horrible horrible thing to do to these people. And one of the problems, a couple of them that have bothered me through all this is I don't know about you, but I don't really know what he means when he says the wall. Yeah. How long it is, how big it is, particularly how much it will cost. If they were building a new BOQ on at Fort Benning. Mm-hmm. There'd be a set of plans, right, right, and uh, a cost, and how many beds, and where here's where it'll be on, uh, you know, on the base. So far, we haven't seen much of that, at least as far as I know. No, we haven't. And, and Angus, I'll give you credit to to your Mainers. I hope they know this. We, we we worked on a deal in February where we took to the president a proposal that was bipartisan: eight Democrats, eight Republicans. You and Mike Rounds of South Dakota were the leaders of this effort. 
And we took to the president the idea of spending $25 billion on border security over 10 years, but spend it the right way. Let's spend it exactly to achieve the goal and protect dreamers. We took that to the president, and the president blew up the deal. The proposal he made Saturday, at least he's finally making a proposal. But if it is a proposal, then he ought to be confident that we can sit down together and try to find some kind of a compromise that would get support, not just in the Senate. Well, the other the other problem is that the proposal came without any consultation with with Democrats. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I can remember very vividly on the floor that night when Mitch McConnell said, "I'm not bringing anything to the floor that the Democrats and the president don't agree to." Yes, and basically he's done that. He hasn't brought anything to the floor, yeah. even though he could have brought to the floor pretty straightforward bills to reopen the government. But the problem is there was this proposed agreement on Saturday came entirely out of the administration with no, it wasn't a negotiation in any sense. It was, this None. is what we'll deign to give you. But but let me now take the, at least say it's worthy of serious consideration. The president's proposal has four elements. What do you spend on border security and how? What do you do about dreamers? What do you do about people who have been given a temporary protected status because they've right. come here after a natural disaster? And what do you do about the asylum processes and reasons for giving somebody and asylum? And all of those are worthy of discussion Absolutely. and could be the basis of an agreement, but it's not going to be take it or leave it. Right. It can't be. It has to be adjustments and spend the money this way. I, you know, I'm speaking just for myself. The dollar amount that he wants to spend on border security, that's not troubling to me at all. It's how you spend it. I don't want right. to waste it. It's interesting that every member of Congress who represents the border in the four states of both that parties. have the border, of both parties say just using the money for a wall is a bad idea. We need money for security, but there's better ways to spend it than the wall. We ought to be paying attention to that. His own border security professionals make much the same point, that if you want to stop drugs, for example, you beef up ports of entry in the United States. If you want to stop the biggest category, people without documents, those who come in on visas and then overstay them, a million-foot wall wouldn't yeah, stop that. The wall has zero to do with that. Yeah, you need to and, track And the other the misunderstanding, and he did it this weekend. The president was talking about caravans and a yes. caravan. Those caravans aren't trying to sneak across the border. Right. They are asylum seekers headed for a port of entry. Right. Absolutely. They're turning themselves in. They right. want to be apprehended, and then they make their asylum claim. So the wall has nothing to do with that. Right. And the wall doesn't, as you know, doesn't really deal t with drugs significantly because drugs come through ports of entry. That's right. His own DEA has said that. So you've got to... I said it was a 1985 solution to a 21st century problem. I read somewhere else it's a 4th century yeah. <laughs> solution. A lot of walls are being built and they they weren't effective. Now, look, there are barriers and walls on the border currently in some spots. And so if our borders— And there may be more places where it makes sense. Absolutely. And I think you and I are open at if border security professionals say, in this particular place, you really need a physical barrier. I mean, I'm, that doesn't trouble me right. in the least. right. But to spend it all on physical barrier when that's not going to deal with the drug program when problem, when it's not going to deal with the visa overstays, when you've got the congressman on the border saying, yeah, you may chant build a wall, you know, in another state, but we're the ones who live here. We're the ones whose people well, are being taken by eminent domain. We think there's a better way to well, do this. Well, on our compromise from last winter, where we had essentially the wall and the dreamers, that was the agreement. There were only three opponents in the Democratic caucus to that proposal. Two of them were the senators from New Mexico. Right, right. Because they know firsthand what it really means and 
apparently they didn't feel – in fact, Martin Heinrich was up for re-election. He didn't feel any uh, pressure yeah. to vote against that because the people in New Mexico don't want a wall. I don't – I shouldn't care, say everybody in New Mexico, right. but at least there are two senators. Yeah, don't. he said it would divide some towns in half. It would take people's property who don't want to give it up. It would restrict workers who are legitimately going back and forth with work visas to do work. So, look, there is a way to get this right. Why do it wrong? Let's get it right. That doesn't have to take a year. That can take a sustained and focused effort of three or four weeks. But we shouldn't have government shut down while we're engaged in that discussion. But I, I read an article this morning, and not to get too theoretical about it, but it said that the reason this issue is becoming so hard to settle is that it represents – it's a symbolic issue. It represents a fundamental view of keeping people out versus – including people yeah, opening and a nation of immigrants. And that's why it's become so symbolic. And mm -hmm. uh, somehow <laughs> you and I and our colleagues have to get beyond that uh, to a practical uh, solution. I get the sense from Republican senators that they're looking for a way out, that they, I, they I want to get this too. done in, in a kind of a practical nuts and bolts kind of way. Is that your perception? It, it is my sense. As you know, we're in session this week. We originally were supposed to be on recess, but I objected along with others to a recess while the government was shut down. So we're in session. And, and you know, over the weekend, I was on the floor on Friday and Saturday, and it wasn't just Democrats making speeches saying reopen the government now. Um, Senator Collins from Maine, Senator Murkowski from Alaska, Senator Portman from Ohio, Senator Graham, a number are saying we, we've got to consider the president's proposal, but the shutdown of government is not the right thing to do. Well, the question, though, is are they ready to vote to end the shutdown without solving the issue? That's right. it's the issue we're going to have to face this week because right. apparently, from what I'm hearing, is they're going to bring a bill to the floor that embodies the president's proposal later this week, but the government will still be shut down. We'll still be negotiating in the shadow of the shutdown, if you will. And I think that's as you, good to go back to the beginning of our conversation. That's... That's the deeper issue here as to whether this is going to become, if it's successful, will become a tactic every time. Right. If we can get out of this shutdown, get government open, find a path in immigration. But the third thing we should do is we should put provisions in place to stop a shutdown from ever being used as a threat ever again. And there are some provisions out there. I have one. I think there are others that we could do that would give people a guarantee that there wouldn't be a shutdown. Well, that, it seems to me, could be a very important outcome. If we can end up solving this and eliminating the shutdown as a, as a, as a tool, as a uh, pressure tool, that will be a major accomplishment that will, again, force us to get on with it. And, and the, here's another thing. The public, my friends at Maine, don't, when I tell them this, they're surprised. We've passed all the budgets. Yeah. And they were bipartisan. Absolutely. The, 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 the fully keep the government open, fund the departments passed, you know, uh, on a uh, bipartisan basis almost mm -hmm. unanimously back in December. And all of these budgets have been through the uh, Appropriations Committee. And there was $1.6 in it for border security which is what the administration asked for last winter. Right. Yeah. It's um, that that is important because the proposal on the table that the Democrats want is not the Democratic proposal. It's not what the new Democratic House said we want to do. It's take a take. Yes, for an answer. It's, pro it's the it's the proposal that the senators have already voted for, that the House voted for when they were Republican majority. It's a bipartisan negotiated deal. And we're just saying let us do that and then have the discussion on border security. Well, I just hope when the dust settles from this, number one, we can get the shutdown over. So we going back to the beginning, we, we don't have people waiting in line to get lunch. Yep. Uh, FBI agents and people that work in the agencies, they're working for the, for the public. 
same same thing in Maine. We've got companies in Maine that can't move forward because they can't get their licenses. We've got people that are stuck that lost closings on housing because the agriculture department yeah. couldn't process the They're loan right. application. You've got um, air traffic controllers at your airports who are not getting paid. Why you don't want to have an air traffic controller like mad at you? You know you <laughs> no, you don't want them no. thinking about their mortgage payment but, or their the indignity of getting but, a paycheck you know, with a zero. One of the problems with this is this is sort of a hybrid shutdown because it's the worst of all worlds. We're making people work and not paying them. Yeah. If you're going to shut down and do it, which I'm not advocating in any way, shape, or form, but to call it a government shutdown and then make these people work and not pay. I mean that's the most basic contract in the in the yeah. world, which yeah. is I work, you pay me. Right. Can I say, I guess there's three levels of completed logic to this. So number one, that because we're having a debate about border— By the way, you're so polite. You use illogic. <laughs> yeah. I would use other words, yeah. but go for it. Because we're having a debate about border security, what, 95 percent of food stamp employees are furloughed? TSA agents? People air traffic have nothing to do with borders. So first thing that's illogical, people have nothing to do with the dispute. They're punished. Second, the president says this is about safety and security. But FBI agents, DE agents, USA, U.S. Marshals, Coast Patrol. Guard, Border Patrol, not getting paid. That's making our security less. And finally— um, I, I was able to, through a parliamentary maneuver, objecting to the adjournment, to force a back pay bill to be passed. So now we have guaranteed everybody that the U.S. Treasury will stroke a check to everybody to recoup their back pay. We're going to pay them, but we're locking them out of doing the job that we're paying them to do. Wouldn't we rather, since we're guaranteed to pay them, wouldn't we rather have them being serving their fellow Americans sure. rather than prohibiting them? So. And, and we're out of time, but the one thing we didn't really cover is that it's not only those 800,000 federal employees. Yes. There are tens of thousands of contractors, people that work for federal agencies. There's no back pay bill for them. Well, there is one. Yeah. Tina Smith and I and, and several others have put a bill in yeah. on that. But these people are really hurting and having to lay people off. Some of them are in danger of going out of business. And, and then all the citizens who aren't being served. There's 2,500 grocery stores that – have their applications pending to be able to accept EBT, the food stamp right. cards, because they want to do that for their customers and they're in process and they will be approved at some point, but they're not able to do it. And when you think about that, Coast Guard members can apply to get tuition assistance, but that program is also shuttered. So they're going to college but having to pay out of their own pocket right. instead of having that. Totally, so, totally blowing up their family's finances. Absolutely. Well, I think the, the the final observation is you can stop paychecks, but you can't stop bills. Yeah, that's And those true. people are still having to try to make their rent, their food payments, their insurance payments, all those things. It's inexcusable. And you and I are in the middle of it, and we have some responsibility to try to make it happen, but to happen on terms that don't ensure that it will keep happening. Tim Kaine. That's the goal. Thanks, Angus. Thank you. You bet. Our thanks once again to Tim Kane of Virginia, who gave us some really good insights about the impacts of the shutdown, but also the politics of it, how we can try to get it resolved, how it's important to get it resolved in the right way so it doesn't keep happening, and what it's doing to people here in this region and, of course, in his state, which has over 100,000 uh, federal employees. Next, we're going to turn to Kristen Maley, who is the head of the Good Shepherd Food Bank in Maine, to talk about the impacts on the ground in the state of Maine and how we might be able to do something about it. Thanks for staying with us, and we'll be back in a minute. All 
All right. Welcome back to Inside Maine. And we just spent a little time inside Washington with Senator Tim Kaine talking about the shutdown, the border security, and all of those issues. But I want to bring it home a little and talking to Kristen Maley, who is the president of the Good Shepherd Food Bank, which is to say on the front lines of food security and food insecurity in Maine is an understatement. Good Shepherd is a statewide organization. Kristen, why don't you give me some background of Good Shepherd? I know what you do and how you do it, but I think our listeners would like to know. Sure. So we are the food bank that serves the entire state of Maine. We provide over 25 million meals a year, serving over 178,000 unique Mainers every year. We do this work through a network of 400 partners around the state. So our partners include your community food pantries, meal programs, homeless shelters, school programs. To use a business analogy, you're sort of the wholesaler. You bring get the food exactly. to the local food pantry that then works with the general public in their community. Exactly. We're the grocery store for the Ending Hunger programs all around the state. Got it. And it's like 13 million pounds of food a year or something in that neighborhood? We're up to 30 million pounds a year. We've grown wow. a lot over wow. the past almost 10 years. That's amazing. And you don't see any slack in the need. No, we don't at all. And that's what's been surprising to most people, right? We're hearing about record low unemployment and the recession well in the rearview mirror, but that's not what we're seeing on the ground. We're seeing a lot of people who are still really struggling to make ends meet. Now, let's get back to the shutdown. You sent me an Mm -hmm. email last week with a very poignant story about someone you met when you were volunteering yourself in a local food pantry. Tell me what you saw. Yeah, I try to volunteer once a month in my own town's food pantry so I can just kind of see firsthand the work that we do. And who we normally serve in our food pantry are a lot of senior citizens and a lot of people with various disabilities. We don't see too many families. So the other week when I was working, I saw a family come in, and so they caught my eye just because we don't see them very often. And we also tend to see the same people in these renewed faces. So when the family came around, they kind of shopped through the different areas in the food pantry, and they came to the table where I was working, I also noticed the mom was struggling trying to hold the, she had a baby in a car seat while she was shopping. And so I, I offered to um, help hold the car seat for her while she shopped. And she seemed grateful for that. And so I was sitting with their lovely, adorable five-month-old baby while she shopped. And then her husband came over, they were shopping together. And when I looked up, I noticed he had a Coast Guard hat on. So I, I asked, I said, are you a Coast Guard? Are you affected by the shutdown? And they said, yes, that's why we're here. They said that they have two two other children in addition to their young daughter. Uh, They have an 8-year-old and an 11-year-old, and they didn't know what to do when he didn't receive his paycheck, and they didn't have enough money for food. She reached out on Facebook asking if folks knew of where she could get food, and somebody connected her to the food pantry. You know, obviously, we're really proud. We were able to be there to respond. She was also thrilled at the quality of the food she got. A lot of people think food pantries are you know, where you get dented cans and cheat cakes, and they left with bags of fresh produce and meat and dairy and and other really healthy foods so that they can still put a quality meal on the table for their family. But isn't that a shame? I mean, you heard Tim Kane and I talking about it. This would be one thing if we were dealing with a hurricane or an earthquake. That's right. Or some kind of natural disaster. But this is an entirely man-made disaster that It's inexcusable. And it's heartening that people have the food banks and they have people coming together to provide help. It's the sort of thing you see in a natural disaster. But in these circumstances, it's what's so frustrating about it. Oh, absolutely. And it's always, I think, the paradox of our work. 
we're frequently held up as a great example of what great works people are doing. And we're obviously incredibly proud of the work that we do. But we should not be serving 15% of our state's population. That's just the shameful fact that we should not be here. We don't need to be here. We're 15, here because we... 15%, 15% of Maine's population is getting all or a portion of their nutrition from food banks, food food pantries. In a time of record low unemployment and a growing economy, there's something wrong with that. Yeah, absolutely. I I think one thing that we've been talking about is that one thing that the government shutdown is doing is it's lifting the curtain a little bit on what really is a huge issue in that how many families are living one paycheck away or one piece of bad news away from complete financial spiral. And that these are the families that we serve. I mean, we're very fortunate we're able to respond, but unfortunately, this is what we're doing all the time. Whether someone's lost that paycheck due to a government shutdown or due to a mill closing. Or they've been hit with an unexpected medical bill or the transmission falls out of the truck. Yeah, we know that 45% of Maine households could not withstand a $400 unexpected expense. That was going to be my next question. I'd heard that figure. And those of us that are fortunate enough to not be in those circumstances, it's sometimes easy to forget. Tell Mm -hmm. me about the people that are your customers. There is a perception these are people that don't want to work. They're lazy. They're taking advantage of the system. Can you give me a thumbnail of who comes in, age? Sure. Background. Sure. So we know that nearly one third of the people we serve are seniors, one third are children, and then we also serve a lot of people living with disabilities. So 87% total of the households we serve contain either a child or a senior or somebody with a disability. So these are people who either obviously can't work because they're children, have worked their entire lives, which are our seniors, or then other people who are unable to work because of a disability. And for the first many years history of food pantries, that really was the majority of people that we were serving. And then other people would come in and out, you know, when times were tight, they would rely on the food pantry for a short period of time, and then they'd get back on their feet again. What we've seen since the recession hit is a significant increase in working families needing to rely on the food pantry. So these are folks who were employed and maybe higher wage jobs. Those jobs went away. The unemployment rate is low. These people are back to work, but they're back to work at lower wage jobs that frequently don't come with any benefits at all. And so even though people are working, they're not able to make their basic needs met anymore. And so we know that 97% of the people that we serve that are able to work, they have a job. And that's what I think is so surprising and so startling well, let, let's, um, about the situation. Let me, un- let me underline that. These aren't people that are lying around being lazy and avoiding work. 97% of the no. people you serve either work or can't work because of age or being children right. or elderly. That's that, right. Well, that sort of shatters the stereotype a bit. Uh, yeah, I, I met a gentleman at a food pantry in Auburn when I was volunteering there, and he came in and I was talking with him, and he immediately was explaining to me why he's there. Again, it bothered me that he felt he needed to somehow explain. There's no shame in asking for help. We all need it at some point. But he felt the need to explain, and he said, my wife and I, we have four children. Between the two of us, we work four jobs. And he said, but we don't get any health insurance. Because we're working, we earn too much money to qualify for any assistance. And he said, we can't afford to make our rent, pay our heat bills, and keep the kids in clothes and gas for our car, and it's just too much. Well, I'm in Maine most weekends. I was in Maine this weekend and hear from people about this. But what are you hearing on the street? What do people think of this shutdown and the fact that this is mm-hmm. happening because of decisions being made down here? I think people are really, really frustrated. I think they're frustrated. I think there is also a lot of talk about 
Do people understand that these workers can't afford to miss these paychecks? I heard someone comment about while they're grateful to see the bill passed, the back pay will be made. That doesn't pay the bills today. And I think you said it very well that the pay stops, but the bills keep coming. And then what we're seeing is the fear of what happens when you miss those bills. All of a sudden, the late fees start piling up. You worry about credit reports getting impacted. Or your car gets repossessed and you you can't get get to work and it sort of cascades. It cascades. It's going to take some of these families months to get themselves back out of this hole. Many of them are renters. We're going to see evictions, you know. But it also highlights, again, we have incredible empathy for the workers that are in the situation, but it also casts light on how many tens of thousands of families are living this every single day. Yeah, you're talking about people that aren't affected. In Maine, we have about 1,200 federal Mm -hmm. employees who are directly affected. And then, of course, as I mentioned, there are contractors who serve the various federal agencies. They're directly affected, but then it sort of flows from there. But I think the point you're making Mm -hmm. is it's all well and good to be talking about the government shutdown, but this is a problem you're facing every day, every week, every month in the state of Maine anyway. Anyway, exactly, exactly. Well, I heard a wonderful thing today that made a lot of sense to me. Town and Country Federal Credit Union in Scarborough is offering layoff loans, furlough loans, where if you are a federal worker, you're laid off, you can borrow up to $5,000, 1% interest, lower fees, and that's a way you can pay the bills because you are going to mm-hmm. be paid. The law got passed down here, which Tim Kaine was one of the leaders, Senator Collins was on it. So you're a pretty good credit in that sense. So that's another example of how a local community is coming together and stepping up to solve a problem that we really ought to be solving here in the first instance. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, if we have time, I'd love to share one more feedback that we're hearing Absolutely. Feedback we're hearing from our partners. So we did send a survey out to our partners to understand the impact and what they're seeing on the front lines. And they definitely, they're all saying, yes, we're seeing some more people, but nothing we can't handle. But there's a lot of concern about the impact on SNAP if the shutdown continues. You probably are well aware 190,000 people in Maine rely on SNAP. They received their January and February benefits. They got February benefits early. So there's a lot of concern about those benefits running out before the end of the month. That's also going to coincide with school vacation week. SNAP, I should mention, is what we used to call food stamps. Food stamps, that's correct. Yeah. Which is life-saving, but not extravagant. Exactly, exactly. The average benefit for a family of three is around $125. And I know for me, I have two teenage boys. That doesn't go very far, but it is life-saving for these families. Well, that's a little Uh, more than a dollar a day per person. That's right. So it's not an extravagant benefit. Again, the perception is, of some people anyway, that people are just taking advantage of these programs. And everybody's had the experience of being in line with someone with SNAP benefits. So that will really compound. If that is a victim, if, uh, Mm -hmm. if those benefits stop in the next several weeks, then we've got a real nutrition hunger crisis. We will. So to put it in perspective, in for Maine, SNAP provides about 6.2 million meals a month. Our entire network provides about 2.1 million meals a month. So that would be the kind of impact we would see if this continues. Wow. And you would be expected to pick up some of the slack, and I think that would be a huge burden on Good Shepherd and all the local food pantries. Absolutely. Yeah. As I said, we're proud we're able to respond right now. We're fortunate that we're not seeing tens of thousands of families affected. But if we see something in the order of magnitude of SNAP being affected, we would be crushed by the demand. Well, Kristen, I deeply appreciate the work that you do. As you know, I've been over to Auburn, and it's so important. And you have wonderful people working there. Some are volunteers, some are full-time, and they're making such a contribution to Maine. All I can tell you is 
we want to get this over with, but I hope you understand what Tim Kaine said. We've got to get it over with on a, some kind of basis that it doesn't become the routine way of governing around here. Absolutely. And that makes complete sense. And we can't allow ourselves to be held hostage to this. So we likewise greatly appreciate everything, Senator, that we know you're doing and that you always have done on behalf of the people of Maine. So we're incredibly proud to have you as our senator. Well, thank you. I'll keep at it. You keep at it. And let's hope that the next time we have a chance to visit, this is a bit of history that won't be repeated. Kristen, thanks so much for all the work that you're doing, and thanks for joining me today. Thank you for the opportunity. I've enjoyed it. Absolutely. Well, that's our discussion for today on Inside Maine. It's actually Inside Maine and Washington on the shutdown, the effects, the prospects for getting it solved, and certainly that's the number one goal in the days ahead. Thanks for being with us. Have a great week in the state of Maine.